Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the sermon. My son, Rowan, loves the water. We, we go to a pool that's got like a zero entry, so he can just kind of march straight into the shallow end. He's got no fear. And some kids, like, they're a little, like, hesitant to put their head underwater when they first get to a pool. Not him. He's like, Daddy, watch this. I'm going to dive deep. And he just throws his whole body under the water. Like, that's cool. Not terrifying at all. So we go to the pool. I take him to the edge of the pool, and I go to the deep end, and I, and I sit there, and he knows he can't. So he's three. He's kind of learning. He knows he can't swim. He can't touch there. I look at him. I say, hey, buddy, it's okay. Jump to me. I'll catch you. And you know what he does? He jumps. Because I told him I would catch him. He believed me, and here's the kicker, and he acted accordingly. That's called faith. What it's called when he looks at me, smiles, and then jumps to a place in the pool that I'm not, I have no idea. But the first thing, that's called faith. <laughs> so we're in Hebrews chapter 11, as you may have noticed through the reading of the scripture there. Uh, if you have a Bible or Bible app and you want to head to Hebrews 11, this is perhaps the best known passage in Hebrews, one of the better known passages in the entirety of the Bible the great hall of faith, 40 verses, 16 heroes of the faith. Each of them could be at least a single sermon just by themselves. There is so much wealth of information and content to the well that is this passage that we could preach just this passage, just this chapter for like four months and still fail to exhaust all it has to offer. So we're going to not cover all of those details in like <laughs> today. What I want to do instead is something a little different. I want to show through this chapter how all of these stories, over a period of 4,000 years, are actually designed to teach us the same lesson. Every story, every hero, every champion of the faith that we see in Hebrews 11 is actually designed to teach us one singular defining truth. See, Hebrews 10 ends with the author encouraging his audience, hey, hold on, remember how you were steadfast in the past, remember how you endured persecution in the past, and most importantly, remember how faithful God was to deliver you from it. Because the greatest tool that we have to hold on to our faith when we face storms in the present is to remind ourselves of the faithfulness of God in delivering us from the storms of our past. And so the author ends chapter 10 by calling them to remember how God has worked in their own lives. Chapter 11, he then shifts gears. He takes it a step further. He says, don't just look at your history. Look at his history. See, Hebrews 11 is not just a series of stories about people who had faith in God. Hebrews 11 is ultimately about the incredible faithfulness of God to work and deliver his people throughout the ages and to fulfill all that he has promised. 
Hebrews 11 is the story of God. He says, look at what he's done. Look at how he's worked and the ways in which he's delivered and provided and taken care of. He's healed and helped his people. Look at how faithful God always is in keeping his promises because when we see, church, the ultimate faithfulness of God to do what he says he will do, it builds and strengthens and encourages our faith. Faith. It's one of those words we toss around a lot in church. We put it in artwork and we hang it on our walls. We wear it on t-shirts and jewelry. We talk a lot about faith to the degree it's kind of surprising we fail to understand it so significantly. So we have this tendency to treat faith like it's just some kind of casual belief. right? It's your, faith is your perspective. Faith is how you feel about something. It's what you think about something. Faith is an intellectual assertion. Like, I believe that the sun rises in the east. I believe that water is wet. I believe that pad thai is edible proof that God loves us. Because it is. It's delicious. Faith is more than that. And what Hebrews 11 is designed to show us is the nature of what faith is and how faith works. This is a master class in our understanding of faith. And so he begins very naturally with a definition in verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And from that, he begins to build off of a definition what faith is and how faith works. And so throughout this chapter, what he does is he actually weaves three key characteristics or attributes of faith all throughout these stories. And so what we're going to do, we're going to look at each of these attributes one at a time. And when they come up on the screen, you're going to see there's little verse numbers underneath them. Those are, for those of you who like to take notes, those are the references to which verses are associated with that particular attribute so that you can kind of see how the author weaves these characteristics together in this great tapestry of faith. And for all of our recovering Baptists, I have a special gift for you. These characteristics are alliterative. You guys are not nearly as excited about that as you should be. Three characteristics. Faith obeys. Faith offers. Faith overcomes. We start with faith obeys. And for that, we go to the story of Noah. I want to be really just upfront with you so that you don't get confused. I'm probably going to say Moses like four times in this. Just for some reason, when my brain tries to say, think the name Noah, the word Moses comes out of my mouth. No idea why. Somewhere in the way, the files got all mixed up. We're talking about Noah, so it's clear. So if you hear me say Moses anytime in the near future, just auto-correct that to Noah, and it won't be confusing. Okay? <laughs> so God tells Noah that there's going to be a great flood. Noah has no idea what that means. There's never been a flood before. And then God tells Noah to build a boat. We're off to a good start. Noah has no idea what that means. He doesn't live near water. He's probably never seen a boat. But God says do it, so Noah does it. He builds a massive ark. It's a football field and a half long, football field wide, four stories tall boat that is big enough to hold between two and five of every kind of animal on the earth two of the unclean animals, five of the clean animals, in addition to the amount of food that it would take to feed them for a prolonged period of time, and Noah and his family. So Noah builds the world's first cruise ship 
And it's not like the little, like, week, long weekend cruises that you take out of Charleston. It's not like a little cruise ship. It's like, hey, you're going to be on this thing for multiple months with a whole bunch of animals. It is a huge, massive undertaking that took Moses, Noah, took Noah, 120 years to build. For 120 years, he endured the ridicule, the jesting, the teasing, the mocking of his neighbors. Hey, Noah, you're still building that stupid boat, you giant idiot. What you going to do with that thing? There's no water around here. What's a boat even do? You real dumb. Right? You know they're making fun of him for that. They're ridiculing that for 120 years. Those jokes get real old. Like, I've been in ministry for, you know, like 20. And, uh, man, the jokes are always sometimes the same. And it's like, man, I'm so tired of that joke. Not for 120 years, though. It's so much worse. And you know, like, I just, I'm convinced that this is where HOAs got all, like, really overly zealous. Like, the last time we didn't have enough rules, a guy built a giant boat in his yard. Can't have that happen again. So we're going to tell you, like, where your trash can can go and what kind of fence you're allowed to have, where you can park your cars, and what tree constitutes as an actual tree. That's fine. I'm not triggered by that at all. 120 years he builds a boat. No evidence. No support, no indication that there was a coming flood. It hadn't even rained. Still, he builds it. Faith obeys. Where faith exists, there will always be obedience. Is that obedience perfect? No, because we're not perfect. So to put yourselves at ease, a lot of times we try to like legalistically apply things to our hearts. Do not shame yourself for this. If you've had a time where you were rebellious, a time where you were disobedient, that doesn't mean, oh, I don't have faith. No, where faith exists, there will be a desire for, pursuit of, and growth in obedience. And here we got to dispel a really common misconception. So you get this idea in church that being a Christian is what we refer to as what's called easy believism. Well, I made a public profession of faith. I got baptized. I go to church sometimes. You know, like not all the time. It's not the highest priority in my life. It's not even that high. But, you know, like on occasion when I feel like, you know, getting out of my pajamas on a Sunday morning, I go to church because, you know, sometimes... I call myself a Christian. I believe in Jesus, right? Christian is my religious view on Facebook, and I always vote Republican, so I know I'm saved. (laughs) Not how that works. Oh, hold on there, Skippy. I read Romans 10.9, which, as we all know, says, because if you profess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So what you got to say about that? I'm so glad you asked. If you profess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you believe that he is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, yes, you will be saved. But here's the kick. You and I don't get to define what believe in your heart looks like. Well, I feel like I believe in my heart. That's your definition. It's not God's definition. When it comes to salvation, it's God's definition that matters, not yours. So, sorry. The Bible is really clear. To believe in your heart is to have a genuine faith in Jesus. And where genuine faith exists, it will always be evidenced by obedience. So the idea that I can call myself a Christian, I can check the right religious box on my religious affiliation, that I can cover that just by making a profession, getting dunked, 
in some water, and then I can go about living my life, doing what I want, living how I want? Absolutely not. If you genuinely and truly believe in Jesus, you will obey Jesus. If you do not obey Jesus, you do not have faith in Jesus. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says believing in your heart is obedience. That leads us to point two. Faith offers. Now, there's two places you can go for this because he uses two stories. One is Cain and Abel. The other is Abraham. We're going to focus on Abraham because his story is so incredibly powerful. 75 years old, Abraham is. When God comes to him and says, hey, you're going to be the father of many nations. At this point, Abraham had no kids. I want to unpack that so you see the significance of it. We live in a culture, right, where sometimes families decide like, hey, I'm going to get into my career. I'm going to get established. I'm going to get financially secure before we start talking about a family. You know, we want to travel or see the world or just have some time together as a husband and wife before we start talking about kids. And that's completely valid. There's nothing wrong with that. We live in a culture where sometimes people wait until their mid-30s to have kids. That didn't happen in Abraham's time. You got married in your early teens. Your financial security, your stability, your legacy all came through children. You got married in your early teens, and you would immediately start trying to have a family. So Abraham is 75 years old. That means he has been trying, desiring, longing for, dreaming about, praying about having kids for about 60 years, and he has been unsuccessful. You understand how crippling that weight is? to long for that for so long, to try for that for so long, and to be unable for 60 years. And then God says, hey, you're going to be the father of many nations. He goes, okay, cool, I believe you. He's past childbearing years. He's past the point when God gives the promise where that should even be possible. But God says, this is what it's going to be. And he goes, okay, and he believes him. And we know he believed him because he obeyed him. Because Abraham did what God told him to do. He went where God told him to go. He followed God's instructions over and over again. And for 25 years, he waited with no indication, with no evidence that God was going to fulfill that promise. Every single day, the promise became more and more impossible. And yet Abraham believed. And finally, after 25 years of waiting, he has a son, his precious Little Isaac, who he loves and adores. Isaac is the joy of his life, his God, gift of God, miracle baby, who he never thought he would have. After all that waiting, all that time, he finally has the thing that he has longed for the most. And then God says, hey, you're going to take Isaac up on the mountain and you're going to kill him. I've been in church my whole life. I've heard this sermon preached so often. And what's always been weird to me is that the guy preaching it and everyone was like, that's, that's ridiculous. Like, that's disgusting. That is a vile and horrific thing. It is, repul- like, there's a natural repulsion that should occur in reception of this command. And I'm not talking about what God's command itself. I'm talking about the fact that God says that about child sacrifice. God hates child sacrifice. He calls it an abomination. He has entire kingdoms wiped out down to their livestock because they practiced child sacrifice. It is odious to him. And yet here he is saying to a father, you're not only going to kill your beloved son, but you're going to incinerate his remains as a burnt offering. What? But it gets worse. The place that God tells Abraham to go is three days travel from where he lives. 
So the cloud of this hovered over his head for three days as he packed their bags, as he journeyed with his son, climbed up the mountain, built the altar, and bound his son to it. Can you imagine how heavy that would feel? Everything that he's longed for, dreamed about, hoped for, the joy of his heart, his legacy, his future, he binds it to an altar. Because that's what God told him to do. And he prepared to offer God the thing that he loved the most in this world. Now, the way this is worded says two things. Firstly, it says that he completed the offering in his heart. That is that Abraham was committed to do what God had called him to do. He was committed to carry out the task. But then simultaneously, it says, he did not physically complete the task. That is that God interrupted him before it was done. Can you imagine just stopping and sitting and what it would have been like to be Abraham and that moment and all the moments before to feel that, to carry that. I mean, we could hear that and go like, how horrific is it that God would ask a father to murder his beloved child? And thus we've missed the point of this entire text. Because the point of all scripture is Jesus. When we see this, our minds should immediately be drawn to our sin. For the heaviness that Abraham carried is the heaviness that God had to carry because of our sin. Our sin is why God had to sacrifice his son. Our sin is what cost Jesus and punished him on the cross. And yet we treat that sin as if it's light, as if it's insignificant, as if it's no big deal. We don't, people will feel guilty. We don't want them to feel bad. It's not a big deal. Let's just brush it under the rug. Like the sin that we commit, whether we consider it morally significant or insignificant, is the reason God had to sacrifice his son. And the story of Abraham is designed to help us see and relate to just how heavy that is. It should be horrific. But not because of the ask, but because of the reason that God had to do it. But Abraham obeyed. He was prepared to offer. In fact, did offer, according to the text. Because Abraham believed. But here's the thing that I want to be really clear about. Abraham's faith was not blind. We get this idea in our head that in order for faith to be real, in order for it to be genuine, it has to be blind, deaf, and dumb. You can't have reasoning, you can't have evidence, you can't have thoughts, or it's not faith. So faith is just an excuse to be ridiculous. Or sometimes, look, I've been in church a long time, people use faith as an excuse to just be weird. Right? Like the guy's like, man, I feel like God called me to not shower so that, like, you know, sin is stinky and repulsive and so then my physical stench can remind people of how gross sin is and then they'll stop doing it. That's just what I feel like God called me to do. That's my faith. It's like, dude, that's not faith. That's just weird. Go take a shower. Let me be clear. The faith that Abraham has here is not blind. It's not empty. It's not devoid of Scripture. It's not devoid of the Word. It's not devoid of the character of God. A lot of times we act as if it needs to be. The faith is just this blind leap into the abyss with nothing to go on. 
That's not what Abraham's doing. In fact, Abraham's faith is well-rooted in the word of God. Because Abraham reasons this, he calls the God that can cause a woman to conceive when she was barren and in her 90s also could have the power to raise a child from the dead. See, when Abraham got the instruction, he didn't dismiss the promise. He remembered, he looked back at what God had already said, and he understood, okay, God told me I would be the father of many nations, that that line would come through Isaac. So if Isaac dies and God doesn't do something, he will fail to keep his promise. And so Abraham was able to obey and offer because he had confidence in the promise of God. Because he knew that God had to and would act. His genuine and sincere belief was that he was going to offer his son and God would raise him from the dead. And if you think that makes the weight of what he was committed to do any less, you are incorrect. Faith obeys. And faith offers. Because it recognizes It offers everything. It offers anything because faith recognizes that the greatest treasure in this world is God. That there is nothing in all existence that can compare to him. And this church is where our culture so often gets faith wrong. So we treat faith like it is a, a magical tool to get things from God, like God's a genie in a bottle and our faith is what lets us rub that lamp and get extra wishes. Right, just have faith, and God will heal you and protect you and give you this and do that, and God will let... <laughs> and we've missed the point. Yes, faith results in us getting things from God, absolutely. But the purpose of biblical faith is not to get things from God. The purpose of biblical faith is what we give to God. I want to zoom in on verse 11, or 13 here. These all died in faith. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of the land which they had gone out of, they would have been, had the opportunity to return, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city." And all these people had in common, these great heroes in the Faith Hall of Fame, what they had was a promise. No certainty, no evidence, no guarantee, just a promise from God. And they believed in God's promise so completely that they changed their lives for it, that they staked their lives on it. And because of that great faith, it says God was proud to be their God. In fact, if you look at God throughout the Old Testament, when he introduces himself to people, he'll say, I'm the God of Abraham. Abraham? Wow. (laughs) Mix those together. It's really hard being dumb. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Can you imagine your name going on that list? That your faith, that your radical obedience and devotion to God would be so great that he would take such pride in it that when he introduced himself to people, he would be the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and he would put your name there. How cool would that be? Here's the best part, number three. Where faith obeys, where faith offers, faith overcomes. 
Enoch overcomes death. Sarah overcomes infertility. Moses, this is, not, this is actual Moses, not Noah Moses, but Moses Moses, overcomes the generational genocide of, of his people at the hands of Pharaoh. The Israelites overcome captivity and slavery to the most powerful nation on the earth. God leads them away from Egypt. He parts a sea and they cross it on dry land. He leads them into a desert where he provides for them food and water for millions of people and livestock in a desert. I don't know if you know much about deserts, but there's not a lot of water. That's why they're called a desert. And yet, God provides for millions of people water and food. He leads them to the promised land where they bring down the mighty city of Jericho and its incredible walls by marching around it and playing instruments. Right? That is literally the worship team bringing down the house. Open the Old Testament and point to a verse at random, and you are likely going to find a story about the people of God overcoming an impossible situation because of the power of God through their faith in God. And when we read these stories, when we unpack these verses, as we walk through this tapestry that the author is weaving for us, it is like a jolt of spiritual adrenaline. Look at all this stuff that God did. Look at how he rescued people. He shut the mouths of lions. He kept those people from being burned up in a fire. He tore down walls, conquered armies, brought down kingdoms. God did this and this and this. You read it and you're like, okay, let's go. I'm ready. And then verse 35 happens. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Well, that's okay. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, that's with a bang, not with a bong. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. Uh, there it is. They went about in the skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended by their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Whew. Well, that took a sudden and dark turn. I don't like those verses. Can we go back to the whole God just rescuing stuff all the time thing? That's way cooler for me. But this little cherry on top is perhaps the most important thing for us to understand in this chapter. This is what his audience needed more than anything. Because the Hebrew people, they were facing waves of horrific genocidal persecution at the hands of the lunatic emperor Nero. The things and the ways that Nero devised to kill Christians simply for being Christians are unspeakable in the presence of children. They are facing real, genuine suffering beyond that which many of us can imagine because of their relationship with Jesus. See, this is not just encouragement and inspiring. This is a life or death teaching for the people of God. See, what we need to be really clear about here is that faith is not a promise that things are always going to go your way. Right? There's a, a whole movement of churches and pastors that talk about the health, wealth gospel, the prosperity gospel, that, man, if you believe in Jesus, you're going to be happy, healthy, wealthy, and successful and everything. You believe hard enough, you have enough faith, and you get a better car and a bigger house, and you have all this great, incredible stuff, because if you just have faith, God's going to give you everything. 
That is utter, not just unbiblical, but anti-biblical nonsense. What this passage teaches is that God can deliver us, anyone, from anything at any time. That God can deliver, that there is no situation, circumstance, obstacle, storm, or struggle in this life. There is no relationship, no situation, no trouble that you can face that God does not have the power to rescue you from. And so we have hope in all things because we know he can. No storm has to scare us. No storm can overcome us because we know that our God has power over all storms. But we have to be very clear here. The promise that we place our faith in is not that God will universally deliver us. That is, we are not promised that God is going to deliver us from every situation and struggle in our lives. Our faith, our hope is in the promise of an ultimate delivery through Jesus' death on the cross that we would have ultimate rescue with him in eternity. That does not always mean immediate. Faith is not a magical protection from the problems of this world. Sometimes having faith means you suffer. Sometimes it means you struggle. Sometimes it means you're mocked, you're scorned, you're insulted, and you're mistreated. Sometimes it means you lose. Sometimes faith means it hurts, it struggles, it means you're rejected and you feel alone. Sometimes faith means you die. Sometimes it does. Because not everybody who got thrown in the fire was rescued from it. Not everybody had the mouths of lions shut for them. Some had their heads chopped off. Some were crucified. Some were tortured and imprisoned and wronged. And all they had to do to end their suffering was to say that Jesus is not Lord. They could have crossed their fingers behind their back. They didn't have to mean it. They just had to say it. But they refused. And so they suffered. But when we fail to understand what faith is, what happens is we start to misunderstand struggle. We start to misunderstand storms. We think, oh, well, there's a problem in my life. That means I don't have faith. There's a problem in my life that means that God must be punishing me because those are the only two options. No, they're not. Sometimes the struggle that we face in this life is not in spite of our faith. It is because of it. But when we fail to understand that, the struggle becomes a discouragement rather than an encouragement. When Jesus says, in this world, you will have troubles, and you will have them because of me. So take heart in hardship. Take heart in struggle, for there is no storm that will overcome you. Because even if we are not delivered in the moment, we will be delivered in eternity. We have hope in all things. Because God can, and ultimately he will. Faith is what makes us the children of God. Faith is the evidence that we belong to God. Without faith, we are not his. So what is this faith? How does it, beyond just the simple definition, faith, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is having confidence in God. 
Faith is trusting God. Faith is as simple as this. It's taking God at his word and the most important part, living accordingly. Faith is to live as if God exists. Faith is to live as if Jesus died on the cross. Faith is to live as if Jesus rose from the dead. Faith is to live as if Jesus ascended as the ruler, king of kings and lord of lords and that he is going to return and we will enter into his kingdom and that we will be rewarded and that we will live based on our relationship and connection to him. Faith is to obey Jesus. It is to follow Jesus. It is to live for and devote ourselves to Jesus. And so if you want to know if the faith that you have is genuine, if it's real, then the question is, are you striving to grow and mature and develop in your obedience to Jesus? Because faith in Jesus always results in obedience to Jesus. Because you know what all these people had in common? These great heroes of the faith, all 16 stories laid out for us, and then the greater examples listed, they all died without receiving the fullness of the promise. They all died before Jesus appeared. And so the faith that they had was in the future. The faith that they had was in what God could do or would do or might do. But what we have is so much greater because our faith isn't looking to some hope in the future. Our faith is looking to what's already been done in the past. Our faith isn't what Jesus has already done. He's already conquered the grave. He's already secured our victory. He's already won the battle. He's already secured our eternity. He's already done the work. Our faith isn't in the hope of a maybe. It's in the certainty of the already And that is so much greater. We obey, we offer, and we overcome. Not because of what Jesus might do, but because of what he has already done. And every one of us gets to live in the joyous confidence of the resurrection of Jesus. And what we are called to do in honor of him is to live by faith and to die in faith, forsaking all the things of this world that are just ash and dust for the sake of his kingdom and his glory that we would be faithful in our pursuit of him, faithful in our obedience to him. Some of us, like the church in Hebrews, we're facing storms. This is an encouragement. This is your strength. This is your conviction to hold on because he can and he will deliver. For others of us, this is a challenge. A shot across the bow. Because there's an area of disobedience in our life. There's an area that we refuse to surrender, an area that we refuse to give up because it's inconvenient or it's challenging or it's uncomfortable or because it might cost us something that we like in this world. This is a call to obedience. To remind us that the king sits on the throne and those who belong to him obey him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
we come to you from different places, with different struggles, with different needs, but God, we all, we all need you. We all need more of you to empower us, to encourage us, to strengthen us. That even though we believe you might help us with our unbelief, guide us to what you would change in us. Mold us like clay in your hands that we would become each day more like you. And at the end of our lives, when we stand before you, may the message that you have for us be this. Well done, my good and faithful servant. May we live our lives today worthy of those words tomorrow. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for grace. Amen.